0: This is the BrainChip Podcast. Hear from our thought leaders about neuromorphic computing, beneficial AI, and how BrainChip's Akita is pushing AI to the edge. This podcast is a place for investors, practitioners, and anyone interested in the future of AI. Hi all, I'm Rob Telson, Vice President of Sales and Marketing at BrainChip. Welcome and thank you for joining our ninth episode of our Brainship podcast series. Today's podcast is structured to provide our new and current listeners a path to better understand AI and its broad ecosystem. For those that are new to our podcast series, please take time to listen to our other episodes by going to our Learn tab at our website at www.brainship.com or you can listen to our podcast on our YouTube channel at Brainship Inc. Today, we are taking a different approach to AI and its impactful ecosystem. I'm joined by someone who has a deep appreciation for technology and the role that it plays in our society and the future of what we call beneficial AI. Katina Michael is a professor at Arizona State University, holding a joint appointment in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and School of Computing and Augmented Intelligence. She is also the director of the Society Policy Engineering Collective, also known as SPEC, and the founding editor-in-chief of the IEEE Transactions on Technology and Society. Katina is a senior member of the IEEE and a public interest technology advocate who studies the social implications of technology. Katina, on behalf of BrainChip and our listeners, thank you very much for being with us today. Great to be with you, Rob. I have to tell you, you know, beneficial AI is at the center of our values at BrainChip. We are truly focused on the positive impact that AI applications will have on our society. This podcast to me personally is exciting because Katina, your focus is less on the commercial side and more holistic on how AI will impact our behaviors of today while impacting society in the future. So Katina, why don't you take a moment and provide our listeners with a bit of background on yourself.
1: Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'm somebody that's very interested in the future. Everything I do uh, is about the future, but the way I look at it is not just about storytelling and socio-technical imaginaries and perhaps uh, speculative fiction and the imagination, but where are we going to go with all of this technology? We're building these tools that we're creating for people. And so I'm an avid follower of cutting-edge research. I found out about your company many years ago uh, when I was at a conference on RFID in Victoria, Australia. So I'm very transdisciplinary. I belong to the number one ranked university in the US on innovation. That's ASU, Arizona State University. And I started off my career in industry. So quite a much of my inspiration has come from network engineering, has come from consulting has come from uh, looking and investigating manufacturing processes. And then I've thought, well, where to from here? And as I could see, this digital transformation we were undergoing, this explosion from 2G to 3G, the dot-com crash, what came after it? Yeah. I thought, well, you know, where are we going with all of this? So my mind is really buried at the moment in automation, but it's about the human impact of automation.
0: You know, as we talk about automation and we talk about this, because you, you've you basically just spelled it out with, with an, a nice map of how uh, have, have you've evolved as technologies evolved and how you, have you've embraced it. Um, but let's talk about artificial intelligence. And it, it, is, it is a very broad subject. But when you look at AI, what aspects led you to what you're focused on today? And why is this important to you?
1: Well, I was initially sparked by something that happened when I was in my first full term uh, at Nortel Networks, now a company that does not exist, uh, went bankrupt uh, due to a number of factors, but it was one of the largest companies in the world for a long time. And we were putting out smartphones, one of the first basic handsets that was doing WAP uh, back in the late 90s. And... Our CEO basically said, We're going to stop manufacturing smartphones. And at the time, I was doing my PhD and he, I asked, Why? Why are we stopping? You know, we had the smallest handsets on the market at the time, even smaller than Motorola. And the reason for that was because he said, We're going brain to brain interface. And I thought, What? You know, this was back in the late 90s. And uh, the company I worked for at the time sponsored the Cyborg 1.0 project, looking at implantables in humans in order to do brain-to-brain communication. So I knew it was for real. I knew there was commercial investment in this. I knew my research was certainly going to be popular, if not in the early you know, 2000s when people thought I was crazy, definitely down the track some 20 to 30 years from the time of my PhD. So wow. apart, yeah, apart from that, Rob, if you're looking at research grounded in the last two to three years while I've been at ASU, National Science Foundation funding has led to looking at adaptive artificial intelligence in manufacturing, um, looking at the notion of human robot teaming and of course the robotics requiring a lot of investment in AI. So imagine human AI teaming, which part of the process, the task is done better by the AI and which uh, perhaps is assistive to the human to make decisions. So I'm very much about AI being the assistive technology, humans being in the loop and using that to make decisions. Better decisions. Um, I'm also very much about the public interest. Where do we allocate our brains with respect to AI? Where should AI be applied, particularly for public interest technology and equity? And the third thing is looking at that good old what is good design. And I've seen on your website it's constantly about the design process and beginning that with the chips that you offer.
0: I think we're we're you know spot on or, or aligned. When we think about how AI plays a role with humans, and the fact that you know it's basically an accelerator and not something that that takes over, right? Exactly. So let's steer this dialogue a little bit towards what we like to talk about as, as beneficial AI, and and how do you how do you define beneficial AI, and where do you feel the industry is going with social responsibility in this space? You know, moreover. Where do industry leaders have to be focused?
1: Well, there's a lot happening in the industry. Everyone is crazily assembling these AI ethics teams, and I could grant you 17 or 20 different kinds of, you know, foundational principles set out by this institute, this organization, this university, and they're all not really in unison, you know. But it's like, quick, we've got to get this ethics thing under control because we we don't we don't know what it's about. We better have something in there. Uh, for our investors, for uh, our observers, uh, and and understand that it's not going to be enough. Principles are not enough. You know, a lot of people say uh, in this social responsibility realm, you know, it's all about ethics washing at the moment. Oh, I do AI and I do it with good principles and look, here's our AI team and, you know, we pay them as a board and what have you. But there's really two schools of thought here. One is based on what I would call behavioral economics. This is preference-based proposals. You know, the machine will do this. It'll maximize the realization of human values. Uh, The machine is initially uncertain about what those human values are. The machine can learn about human values by observing the choices that humans make. And that's more like the Stuart Russell approach, Mm -hmm. which is very much preference-based. Stuart Russell, of course, a wonderful professor at Berkeley University, He's talked about AI for good and what's good. You know, who knows what good is, uh, as he says. We're very bad at defining objectives. But that's very much the economics perspective, that the best choice to be made, the rational choice to be made. Uh, And it's about human behaviour. But, of course, we know that human behaviour often stuffs up. And, unfortunately, following human behaviour, if we get the machines to just look at what people are doing and then sort of learn from that, we can see what happened to Microsoft's um, chatbot Tay. Uh, which went wild when it was released, because it looked at things like violence online. It looked like, you know, things to do with um, uh, abuse of people, discrimination and so forth. Um, so there is also the other values-based uh, sort of beneficial AI, which looks at human values to begin with, those principles that we all espouse and we share. You know, it's good not to kill people. It's good not to praise anorexia. It's, you know, we have these common values. And so I look to Shannon Valo, Kate Crawford, John C. Havens of the P7000 series uh, of IEEE, Sarah Speakerman, uh, Jeremy Pitt, Robert Abbas, Batya Friedman, all of whom talk about ethics and values, values in AI. And so these two schools of thought are butting up against each other, but sometimes it's dis- it's hard to distinguish. Um, but we would rather perhaps look at principles of transparency, of justice, of fairness, of responsibility, of privacy and consent, and ensure that people have freedom and autonomy, that they have justice, that we can distribute benefits for all. So, when you ask me perhaps what is beneficial AI, I tend to look at projects that are shared the redistribution of energy, sustainability right. questions, questions to do with clean drinking water, access to shelter. How can we leverage AI to help us in the public interest? And these are sort of More complex to define uh, than initially we might think, but it's more a values-based approach where we can all enjoy the fruits of beneficial AI.
0: Highlighting the fruits of beneficial AI and, and how we can get clean water and how we can, in third world countries, leverage AI, leverage technology to enable these countries to have access to commodities and food and shelter and whatever it is that they're striving for. Um, we have the technologies to do this and it is using it the right way. But let's, let's go a little bit deeper, taking a deeper look, you know, just how AI can be beneficial in our daily lives, not just for, from an entertainment value. And I think you've kind of highlighted some key areas, but one of the things we talked about when we had our, our pre-chat, um, we spoke about beneficial AI for prosthesis and how the industry is poised to enhance the benefits of the human experience uh, this is something that you highlighted as, as a real opportunity. Uh, let's take a moment and share, share a little bit more about h- how you see this evolving.
1: Well, I've always been interested in prosthesis from probably mid-90s and later. Um, you know, questions about whether we could help the blind to see one day uh, with particular kinds of eye diseases, whether, you know, the deaf would hear. And, of course, we, we have seen that through the cochlear implant but a whole bunch of other things to do with prosthetics. You know, people will be alarmed to learn that there's one amputation every 30 seconds in the world. That's a big market. That's people who mostly can't afford proper prosthetic limbs. You know, the majority of these amputations don't happen in the West. So if we want people to feel functional or to have a function restored, it's not enough just to say, here's a piece of wood, you know, that's what's yeah. happening in developing nations. Uh, or here's something like a crutch that you can use to help you get around. Uh, we can see even these problems in refugee camps uh, where frugal innovation occurs. And there's amazing things are now happening through new fabrication techniques, the ability to print on demand 3D limbs yeah. and to give them away to people who can't afford them. But now we're getting to the next level prosthetics. And let's just for a moment, not talk about sort of the brain implants, like the brain stimulation techniques. Uh, Let's talk more on the prosthesis. Like what if I have a missing uh, arm or leg? And, you know, to date, the motorization of these prosthetics um, have helped, but now we're saying, instead of sort of three degrees of comfort, like, you know, you can change this angle and this angle and this angle, the prosthetic can actually learn what angle is the best for your foot the prosthetic can actually relay information back, feedback loops, right? This is going back to the works of Norbert Wiener who talked about feedback in control systems and how do we get this bi-directional feedback flow right? so that I can learn what the best gait, the best position, the best angle in a particular context is for you. And rather than you shifting it manually by, uh, you know, inputting the variables or going to your doctor and having them input the variables, I can learn and I can shift on demand. I can shift by learning about your patterns. And so we're talking now about millivolt signals being recorded and even now not doing this prosthesis, which is invasive in terms of a brain implant, but rather sticking electrodes on the surface of the body and then having thought to movement translation of those signals. That is crazy. I think something, A sensor on my head or my body or my limb translates that, and we have now more powerful recording from the signal to movement, and that's really about regenerative peripheral nerve interfacing. right? Of course, some of these uh, have started off as DARPA projects and commercialised later because there's been so much trauma uh, in our armed forces uh, through missing limbs and so forth, um, accidents and, and war. Uh, But what we are looking at is next-generation prosthesis, and we're also now asking insurance companies, look, we know that putting the AI layer and the smarts on top is going to cost more. In some instances, people have estimated tens of thousands of dollars more, but look at what this means for the human. But, again, juxtaposing this, I would like to go back to, you know, prosthesis um, is very important to the individual I wanna go back to the public interest and the common good question, which is looking at clean water. I mean, Americans probably don't realize Legionnaire's disease is is rampant still in the American water system in pockets. Mm -hmm. So how do we predict when levels are getting to a point that we need to intervene, right? So, So the chips are there to keep monitoring, keep sensing, keep feeling, if I can put that there, and saying, okay, this is adequate, levels of water quality, but once we go above this threshold, we need to, you know, raise the alarm bells. It may well automatically clean systems or stop systems or call a human to intervene. Um, That's all dependent on how the system would be built. But I want to go back to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I want to go back to predictive modelling. It's only one sort of option uh, in terms of being proactive. But also, how do we redistribute? limited, finite resources so that everyone in our neighbourhood can enjoy, for example, cool uh, air uh, during sort of the Arizona summer, which is very, very prohibitive, and then heating, for example, in cold places, you know, or knowing when your pipes are going to freeze, right? So there's so much there, but I do want to stress the point of I love love where we're going with the prosthetics. I think, you know, technology over time will continue to, to be better, but I also wanna stress actually AI again to those government oriented applications which affect all people, not just the individual.
0: One of the things that you, you started to highlight, when you talked about Legionnaires disease and you, you talked about uh, water quality and having the technology to recognize what is good water and when is it not healthy? And so that's interesting because I'm gonna now take the, the, the next question and, you know, lead you towards brain chip and lead you towards Akita. But, you know, our product, Akita, uh, being a neuromorphic processor and being able to address the sensor modalities uh, play, you know, it's playing a, a role in supporting, not replacing the human experience, like in prosthetics or, or also in climate change management or in um, water sustainability and in industry itself. Um, we're, we're, we're but, but let's look at that in more detail. And where do you see some of these applications, broader applications for AI here? And, and what would you focus on?
1: Well, firstly, I've got to say, um, I've been reading your literature since probably 3 a.m. this morning in Australia time, um, which has been about five or six hours. And if I can use the analogy, the processes remind me of uh, Octopi. And I'll say it as follows. You know, the brain of an octopus sits between its eyes, okay? But every single one of its tentacles is a brain of its own. And so what we have in these neural processes now is the ability to be doing multiple things at once. So imagine an octopus, eight tentacles feeling its way through, but every single arm is doing something different. It's going off on its own sort of tangential, oh, my suction – Uh, pads on my uh, tentacles are telling me to do this. Okay, well, I'm I'm responding in a bidirectional feedback loop to that. You know, this would have been Norbert Wiener's, you know, most effective, I think, um, scientific outcome uh, if he was able to to build that kind of thing in his information theory. But the suckers are mining their own kinds of feedback loops and sensing out there, and they're coming back. And two-thirds of the neurons of the octopus sit in the tentacles, in the arms. And so that's what Akita is doing with this neural processor. It's attempting to feel using the incredible breadth and capability that it has. And it's feeding back these loops because it does event data processing pretty much and manages event data. And so these interactions to me are quite impressive. When I look at the Akita neural processor, uh, the system on a chip one, which says effectively 1.2 million neurons and 10 billion synapses, right? You're trying to reproduce the brain's functioning through your chip and just to, you know, be more uh, a little bit sober in terms of what's that capability actually look like, you know, even when we've attempted to simulate a small portion of the brain, we feel this is just like a couple of synapses. We know the complexity of doing that near impossible, but as our processing power increases and our ability to do what we're doing uh, in terms of the systems architecture on the chip gets better, we will be able to do things in an iterative capacity. And I think this notion of, uh, it reminds me of when you learn uh, SQL query in university, the professor always says to you, don't try to solve the problem in one hit because you need multiple queries to get there. So that's the sequential nature of how the chip works. Right. and. You know, it's application to, when I look at monitoring of systems, like those I've just mentioned, like water quality, for example. Um, I know in China I had a visit uh, from one authority when I was at the University of Wollongong in Australia, and uh, they were talking about water quality in China because of the lakes and the industry around the lakes. And they said, oh, we just tell people just open your taps, let the water run and tell us is it black, grey or white in a see-through? And I'm just thinking surely we can do better than that with our technology. Um, But the chips will enable us to do things that we couldn't do before, predict things that we couldn't predict before. They're a completely different architectural makeup. And so when we're talking about um, neuromorphic computing, convolutional computing, which is heavily based on mathematics, When we're looking at neural networks, how the brain works and trying to simulate how that activity would work, it means as humans, we don't think in a a one-dimensional way. I can only think about Rob right now because I'm talking. No, I can actually see what he's wearing. I can see that he's got glasses on and and so forth. I know that I can hear the the tone of his voice and all of these things are sensing the environment. So I think chips are able to, uh, like Akita's are able to bring in this input, whether it's still shot images, whether it's um, audio, whether it's quality of air, uh, whether it's whatever it is, smell, you know, into the future, we're gonna be looking at smell and odor, Um, but it's the ability to take in all of these inputs and make sense of them, which we couldn't do before at once. And I guess the the real next phase is video analytics. Um, That's where I'm seeing a lot of potentiality both for good and harm, by the way. Um, But in terms of the good stuff, uh, being able to sense what's happening in an environment with a lot of different inputs coming at once. Let's have a little bit of fun
0: now. Who is your favorite superhero and why? And if you could
1: add one AI superpower, what would it be? A lot of people have seen me do uh, presentations with Wonder Woman and a few other wonderful ladies as superheroes in the background. I'm going to choose Wonder Woman. I'm going to say because uh, she's powerful in many different ways, um, but also she symbolises to me, you know, the lasso of truth, the lasso of truth. Nice. Yeah, and I, I, I want to expand on that because it's, it's important. It's been called the Lariat of Truth, the Magic Lasso, the Lasso of Hestia, the Golden Perfect, and William Marston, who was the inventor of the lie detector, actually created Wonder Woman, right? Many people don't realize that. And initially, people thought, oh, he's invented Wonder Woman with the lasso of truth because it's got to do with his lie detector. But in actual fact, he and his wife, uh, who were studying at the same time at Harvard University, uh, were looking at research into emotions. And I think with the effective computing, the AI that's coming out, you know, emotion detection um, is someone feeling depressed, sad? Can I hear it in their voice, in their intonation? Uh, can I see it visually? Uh, are we able to denote someone's health by the way they look, their skeletal structure, is the things that we know about someone? Uh, and these things actually are a mind field today because if I could look at you or somebody on the street and go, that person is predisposed to this condition because I can tell from the photography and the, the analysis, the microanalysis that is being done on voice, on, you know, on um, visualisation and more gait even. You know, that's how we're predicting if there's a terrorist in queue at an airport, right? This is what we're doing with facial recognition. But let's go back to Wonder Woman. I wanna just, 2017, Captain Steve Trevor, the pilot of the American Expeditionary Force, gives away his serial number, Rob, and he does it because the lasso of truth is around him. And he says, what the hell is this thing? You know, the lasso of Hestia compels you to reveal the truth. You know, you imagine AI, you know, compelled you to tell the truth. And he says, but it's really hot and painful to resist. And the voice says, it is pointless and painful to resist. And he says, I, and he's straining, I am a spy, right? But the whole thing is, you know, the the older days, resistance is futile, and we've turned it upside down. Wonder Woman says, you know, it's pointless to resist. Resistance is futile, but it's the lasso of truth. And I think if we can get AI not to be used for our own means, but in the sense of uh, abused, misused, uh, misrepresenting things, uh, showing things that perhaps are biased because of data bias, algorithmic bias, uh, model bias or societal bias, and we can speak the truth, that's where I wanna tie in the lasso of truth to AI. Now
0: that's that's spectacular. That is spectacular, Katina, You have, have to tell you. Thank you, Katina. Thank you for your insight and your feedback. On this podcast and the work that you're doing is critical it's impactful and um, you know based off of what we're talking about here and everything going on you know it has that potential to come together you know i know i'll be incorporating the lasso of truth into a lot of my dialogue <laughs> as well <laughs> so uh, for those that have not spent time on the brain chip youtube platform do yourself a favor and subscribe to the Brainship Inc channel on YouTube. Take a look at our demo videos and application videos as well, as listen to previous podcasts. On behalf of the Brainship team, we want to thank all of our listeners and everyone truly interested in learning more about AI, the ecosystem and today's focus on beneficial and impactful AI. We truly appreciate all of your passion and support. Our podcast series will continue next month, Until our next podcast, we wish everyone to stay healthy, happy, most importantly, stay out of trouble and bear down. Thanks for listening to the Brain Chip Podcast. Please remember to rate and review on your favorite podcast platform.